All right, in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, we are going to resume in chapter 6. And hopefully we actually finish chapter 6 today. Uh, if you remember, we covered up to verse 65 last week, so we'll start with verse 66. And we'll just read this section maybe from 60 to 67, just to look at it in context again. And like I said, our plan is to finish chapter 6 today and get into chapter 7. All right, so John 6, verse 60 to 67. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Alright, so like I said, we covered the majority of that section. We finished up until verse 65. And so we'll start discussing this section from verse 66, which is basically from the way that they react to what Christ said, right? So how do they react? You know, he criticizes them. He asks if they're scandalized. You know, are you offended by this? You know, what if I tell you that, you know, you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Then he said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father, right? And then, how do they react? What happens in verse 66? They left, right? Many of them were fed up, right? They had enough, right? So they all left. Now, what's the objective of Christ's ministry? To call people to Him, right? For people to follow Him, to be with Him. Not for people to leave Him, right? Like, there's no easy way to translate that. But he wants them to follow him. Right? So how does he respond? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not like he's saying, you know, good riddance. But he's saying, well, do you want to go as well? Like he's telling his disciples, are you going to follow along with them, right? So, he loses their approval, right? Clearly, they're not a fan of what he's saying. But he doesn't compromise his word to gain their approval, right? He's not just willing to bend the truth for the sake of their approval, right? And that's a remarkable quality about Christ and His ministry and how we as Christians should also live. Okay? The apostles never cared about the approval of men. That they wanted to call everyone to Christ 
They wanted everyone to follow in their footsteps. Even St. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? So their objective was for everyone to follow in their footsteps as well. But whenever there was a clash between their words and the people's approval, they always chose the word of God, right? If you remember in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were imprisoned after they preached, and then the angel came and released them, and then they went back out to preach, even though they threw them in prison for preaching. Okay, in verse 28 and 29, the officers questioned him and say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Right? And this was the mind of the apostles. This was the Christian mindset from the beginning. Paul says this several times throughout his epistles in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. As we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Right? We're primarily concerned with pleasing God. Not to just bend our values in order to satisfy men and seek their validation and their approval. In Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? And he's asking this question. Am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay? So he goes so far as to say, as, this isn't even a part of my objective. If I was trying to please man, I couldn't even call myself a servant. Right? Now, that doesn't give us the license to walk around insensitively, and it doesn't give us the license to be rude, but our objective is not just to please people. Right? We still have to be considerate, we still have to be sensitive, but our priority is to please God. Right, so let's meditate a little bit more on this question that Christ poses to his disciples. And again, this is after a lot of people left, right? So this is a bold question. You know, in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Not just a few people, but many people. And then he says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Okay, now, what's he really trying to do by asking this question. I personally took away four little lessons that we can really apply in a practical way. First, he's challenging them. Okay? He's confronting them with a decision to make. You're either in or you're out. Okay? Here's the fork in the road. You got to make a decision. Okay? So that's what this question does. It puts pressure on you to decide. You're either in or you're out. And it's a decisive question. Do you also want to go away? You got to decide. Make a decision. Otherwise, if you're just going along with the flow without a real conviction, then the moment your faith is tested and you run into some trouble, you won't persevere. If you remember that story with the coyotes that were running after the other coyote in the front, you know, one coyote saw a rabbit and he's chasing after this rabbit. And then the other coyotes see that there's a coyote running. So what do they do? 
you know, it's this canine instincts that they chase after each other. So they started to run after the coyote in the front. They don't even know why they're chasing after him or what this coyote is running for, but they're just running along, right? Meanwhile, the coyote in the front is trying to catch dinner, right? So he's running as hard as he can, and, you know, as the rabbit is cutting corners and going through the bushes and going up and down the hill, you know, even though he might not see the rabbit for a moment, he's still running, he's still running because he's convicted, like, I have to get this rabbit or else I don't eat tonight, right? Now, even though he's getting tired, he's still going, whereas the other coyotes behind him, you know, after a while they get a little bit tired, what do they do? Like, wait, what were we running for all along? (laughs) So then they stop, right? But he keeps going and gets the rabbit, right? Because he already made a decision from the start, right? I, I committed to this task, right? And you commit with a conviction, right? So that's what this question does. It challenges them. Second lesson I took away from this is that he's purifying their intentions. Okay, he's saying, if you want to go, the door's right there. Okay? I'm not forcing you to stay. You're not doing me a favor by staying. Okay, so if you're staying, it better be for the right motives. Okay? You have to have pure motives. Not because someone is forcing you. Right? And I know a lot of parents run into this with their children. Because you want your children to do the right thing from their own heart. But at the same time, like you want to give them a little kick in the butt so that they can actually commit to the right thing. Right? And so Christ is saying, do you also want to go? Because that decision that you're making has to come from a pure heart. Okay? I'm not forcing you. I gave you freedom, and it's up to you to decide how you want to use that freedom. So St. Athanasius says, For it's the part of true godliness not to compel, but to persuade. Our Lord Himself doesn't employ force, but offers the choice, saying to everyone, If anyone will follow after me, and to His disciples in particular, will you also go away? Right? So this has to come from you. This has to come from you. That's what this question does. It forces their decision to come from their own heart. And the third lesson is that he's eliminating the possibility of staying out of guilt or shame. And a lot of times we just feel shamed or guilted into doing the right thing because we're a little bit embarrassed or whatever. And, you know, a, a part of us feels like this is the right thing to do, but, you know, we're not doing it because we really want to. We're just trying to avoid the guilt and the shame. And so he's liberating them from the burden of guilt. He's saying, look, the door is wide open. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to condemn you. No reason to feel guilty. If you want to go, I'm the one who initiated the question, right? You don't have to feel guilty. Like, I'm making it very easy for you. So you can have a nice, clear conscience. Right? St. John Chrysostom says, By showing, as he did, that he didn't need their company, he made them stick all the more closely to him. In this way, he, pre- he prevented them from staying with him out of any feeling of shame or compulsion. 
Okay, and this is important too because when we feel shamed into doing something, then even if we do it, it's done out of bitterness, right? It's done with resentment. It's not done for the right reason, right? And the results are never optimal in that way, all right? And then the final lesson that I got from this, the fourth lesson, is that he's expressing his preference for quality out of quantity. And this is a big deal, especially for us servants, that we want to bring as many people as possible to Christ. And we're thinking about the numbers. But Christ was never concerned about the numbers. He was concerned about the quality. St. Cyril says, For it's not the number of worshippers, but rather those who excel in the right faith, though they are few, that are precious in the sight of God. Right? So he's saying, all I care about is the faith of the servants with me, not the number of servants with me. And of course, this is coming from the God of all gods. Like, this is the one who created all of us and wants all of us to be with him. But he's saying, I'm not here to just walk around with a big number of people. What I want are true servants, are true dedicated servants. I I care about the heart, not just the amount of things that we do, not the number of prayers, not the number of days we fast, not the number of activities we do. God cares about the heart and, and the quality more so than the quantity. All right, so any comments or questions about that? So it's an important question that we can ask ourselves. We can consider Christ asking each and every single one of us here, do you also want to go? And our answer is obviously like what St. Peter said, we have no one but you. We wouldn't dare to think of leaving. So we'll get into that part next right here. So let's read from verse 68 to 71. All right. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. All right. So I'll ask an open-ended question because I really haven't heard much from you so far. What do you think of Peter's response? What do you think? It seems logical. Okay, good. It's definitely the the logical response. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's almost opposite Peter's response from when he first said Christ. Okay. In in the beginning, he's doubtful, right? And here it's like he's all in, right? Uh, He's embracing Christ. He's completely devoted to him. We have no one else but you, right? And interestingly enough, 
you know, he stumbles along the way, and uh, you see the old Peter come out a little bit, right? So Peter is always like riding this wave of faith, right? Which is beautiful to see because it's refreshing to us as Christians to consider like the great Saint Peter um, as someone that we can identify with, someone we can relate to, right? Because we walk through faith and this walk of faith in a very similar way, right? So he wants to stay, right? So I said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, you could actually interpret this in a couple of different ways, right? What does it mean for him to say, we have no one else? Okay, like we're kind of stuck with you, right? And that's one way you can look at this response. It's like, man, like I'm already like hundreds of miles away from my house. Uh, like I've, I've, I've invested too deep. Like I'm in too deep already. We have no one else but you. Like I have to settle for this now, <laughs> right? And so that could be a way of interpreting this. And so the only way for us to understand whether like, this was a, a real expression of devotion to Christ or just Peter saying like, hey, we got to settle for living with you because like, we already threw away our job, we're far from our families and you know, we have to settle for this. The only way for us to think about what, what it really means is to consider whether they really had other options. Exactly. They all could have left. So he, he's not saying, like, you, you know, we have no one else, so we have to settle for this. It's like when you open the fridge and you have, like, a piece of chicken, and you say, what else can I eat but this chicken? Maybe it's not because you really want to eat this chicken. Maybe, like, nifsak falahma, or you're craving some meat. <laughs> but... You know, you have to settle for the chicken because you have nothing else. But if you have meat and fish and chicken and vegetables and, and all this stuff, and then you look at the chicken and they're like, oh, what else would I eat but this chicken? Like, obviously, that's all I want, right? It's, it's a decision out of many options. And the Christian always chooses Christ in the midst of countless options in the world, Right? And, and, you know, they didn't always have this resolve. I mean, once Christ was crucified and resurrected, what's the first thing that you see the disciples do? Like, they almost forgot about this question, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> it's as if that never happened. Luke and Cleopas are going back home, and they meet Christ, and they're like, yeah, we really thought it was going to be him, and... You know, they all went back to go fishing and stuff. So anyways, all this to say that the true disciple does not settle for Christ. The true disciple chooses Christ, commits to Christ as his priority, despite all of the available options. Okay? 
So his motive for choosing Christ is not really because we have nothing else better to do. We have no one else better to go with. But his motive is that Christ has the words of life. You have the words of eternal life. Okay? Psalm 73, verse 25 says, Who do I in heaven but you? There is none that I desire upon the earth but you. It's one of my most favorite prayers in the Psalms. When David says, Who do I have in heaven but you? There is none that I desire upon the earth but you. And David was a king. And he had a lot of people. He had uh, the best food, uh, the best entertainment. He had everyone and everything accessible to him. But when he tasted Christ, he said, Who do I have in heaven but you? Who do I desire upon the earth but you? Because that is his priority, is, is to have Christ, is to have the words of eternal life. Okay? And then... Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Okay? We notice the order of this confession. Okay? We have come to believe and know. Right? We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, is there a significance in that order? That we've come to believe and know? Or just kind of happen? to come down on paper like that. You think they're about the same when you know you believe? Okay. What do you... Very good. And so that's the significance of this order. Okay? It's counterintuitive especially in a secular intellectual culture, right? Because our faith is always predicated on our knowledge and our understanding, right? That's why we say you have chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Because it's the foolish that don't rely on their intellect, right? They first believe, then they come to know, right? So... His faith preceded his knowledge of Christ as the Messiah. And that's significant. It doesn't mean we eliminate our mind, but it has to come under submission to our faith. Does that make sense? So this is what St. Augustine says. For we believed in order to know. We believed in order to know. Had we wanted first to know and then to believe, we could have never have been able to believe. What have we believed and known? That you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is, that you are eternal life and that in your flesh and blood you give what you are yourself. Right? I mean, think about the sacraments. Think about the Eucharist. Do you come to know what it really does for you, then you come to believe in what it does for you? Or do you come to believe in what it does for you, then 
you know, you understand, you experience the benefit of what it does for you. So the faith has to precede knowledge, because knowledge is about that experience. Okay, so for me to experience the presence of a person in my life in a loving relationship, I have to take a step of faith by giving that person time, right? By believing in the, the value of investing in that person, right? And I spend time to go grab lunch with the person or to go walk in the park. And I, I invest, I take a step of faith, and then I come to know the person. Our walk with Christ is always just a step of faith, and then I understand, right? I open my Bible knowing that the scriptures will benefit me, even if the last time I opened my Bible and I read for 20 minutes, I got absolutely nothing, right? So I have to take that step of faith, and then I open my eyes, and then I come to understand, right? different than the way we typically live our life. <laughs> what do you guys think? Yeah, I just had a conversation recently. Okay, okay. Hmm. Or I, I don't Right. In, in my life, I, I don't have the. So my, my faith is not strong enough. My faith did not get or become strong enough by understanding. I don't know if I'm No, that makes sense. I, I see where you're getting. That's why faith always has to exist in the context of experience. Otherwise, it's nothing more than just speculation. You know, I, I presume that God is good, but I've never actually experienced His goodness. Does that make sense? And our faith is always rewarded. If we go into our relationship with God and we take that step of faith genuinely, it never goes without its reward. And if it goes unrewarded, it's probably because there was a problem along the way from our end. Or maybe there was some selfish ambition or like maybe we're trying to collaborate with Christ for the wrong reasons. Like you're going to see in the beginning of this next chapter when the people want to go with Christ to Judea so that he can manifest more miracles and signs and wonders because of their own selfish ambition, 
right? So that's never going to be rewarded, right? Or maybe we go into it and we're distracted, right? Like let's say I want you to come see my favorite movie, which is Gladiator, by the way. And, and I tell you, trust me, this is the best movie ever, which it is, by the way. And so you're going to take a leap of faith and say, okay, I'm going to give it some time. I'm going to come and watch this movie with you. Okay, so there's that leap of faith. You're going to invest. I believe you, and then I'm going to come to know and experience the, <laughs> the, the, the beauty of this movie. All right, now let's say after you take that leap of faith and you come to watch this movie with me, while you're sitting in your chair, you're always texting. Or you pull out your phone and you stroll through social media. Or you get up to use the bathroom like eight times. And you basically like miss half of the movie. Then you walk out and you're like, I got nothing. I'm like, no duh. <laughs> Did you expect to get anything from like the way you watched the movie? Like you didn't really go into it in a genuine, faithful way. And that's actually one of the reasons why, one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons why we typically do not benefit from the liturgy. They say, oh, Abuna, I went and I prayed and I walked out and I got nothing. Like, well, think about how you went into it. Think about how much attention you invested into the liturgy, whether you really prepared, whether you did your part to really commit to the liturgy. And if we do that, we put God's promises to the test, right? And His promises never fail, right? Any thoughts or comments? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Otherwise, it's not faith. Then, like, I, I can't say I have faith that all of you are physically present in Bible study. Because I see that. Like, uh, that's logically the case. Right? Now, I can say I have faith that you'll go home and uh, pray your igbeya before you sleep. Like that I won't see, I don't know, right? So I, in, in Hebrews, St. Paul says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The evidence of things hoped for, not what you see in front of you. There's no faith in what's evident, right? So I'm glad you mentioned that. All right, now, any other comments, questions? 
He says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So this phrase, did I not choose you, this question, has a lot of weight to it. Especially given the context of what follows. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? I chose a devil. <laughs> one of the twelve is a devil. But hey, I chose you. Right? So, we know who he's referring to, right? He's referring to Judas. Right? But notice how he still chose and loved Judas despite his knowledge about Judas. Okay, so God's love is not predicated on his foreknowledge of our reciprocation of his love. Does that make sense? He loves us regardless of what he knows we'll do with that love. And that is the definition of unconditional love. It's not conditioned on your reciprocation of that love. And if there's any proof of that, it's in choosing the one who crucified him, the one who betrayed him. Right? So he chose Judas, and not just chose him. Because he could have said, like, I'll, I'll let you come hang out with the gang. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. No, he didn't just choose him. He gave him everything that he gave the rest of the disciples. The power to cast out demons. When he sent them out to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom of God. That was all granted to Judas. Right? So he didn't just choose him, but he loved him. Right? Look at what Father Arsene Boca says. This is one of the most beautiful quotes in the world. God's love for the biggest sinner is greater than the love of the holiest man for God. Let's say it one more time. God's love for the biggest sinner is greater than the love of the holiest man for God. So God's love for Judas is greater than the love of the holiest man for God. Think of the holiest person you can think of and their love for God doesn't match the love of God for the greatest sinner. And in this case, you might as well think of someone like Judas or whoever, right? And I put myself in those shoes, right? And so that's what divine love is all about. So this shows how God uses everyone for His glory. Okay, He chose the twelve, one of which is a devil. So this also tells us how God's divine providence, His economy, is full of wisdom and it's full of beauty. Like He's able to use the good and the bad and everything in between for His divine plan. Okay, St. Augustine says, For as the wicked turn the good works of God to an evil use, so inversely God turns the evil works of human beings to good. What can be worse than what Judas did? He was chosen as the treasurer among the twelve who would dispense gifts to the poor. But instead of being thankful for so great an honor and favor, he took the money and lost righteousness. Being dead, he betrayed life. 
the one he followed as a disciple, he betrayed as an enemy. Yet our Lord made a good use of his wickedness, allowing himself to be betrayed so that he might redeem us. If God employs the evil works of the devil himself for good, whatever the evil person does by making bad use of God's good gifts only hurts himself. It in no way contradicts the goodness of God. It's a beautiful concept. I, I know that was a lengthy quote, but what you can take away from that is how God is able to use the worst of the worst for His good, right? And not that it benefits Him, but it's for our benefit, right? So think about the worst of the worst in your life, the Judases in your life, not specifically people, but situations, the evil situations, the tribulations, the struggles, the burdens, all of the troubles in your life, God is working through those to redeem us. Okay? Just as He worked through Judas to give us salvation. So our redemption came through the betrayal of Judas. Not that He caused it, but in His foreknowledge, He used it. He knew that this was what would happen and he transformed his wickedness into a channel for our salvation. Right? Any comments or questions about that? Yeah. Like ones that are the worst of the like the worst situation Judas. Uh, you were saying Simon, whose faith is just kind of wavering. It's like so when you're introduced to Christianity and stuff, it's almost like he gives you somebody to relate to, and so you get to where you should be. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 That's the beauty of our church. I, I, I love that concept because we really have such a wide diversity of saints, you know, people that came from different backgrounds and different experiences, and we can relate to all of the saints in, in the church in a unique way. And there are many ways to reach Christ. That's why we pray that in the liturgy. You say, uh, was incarnate and became man and taught us the ways of salvation. Even though there is one way, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way, which is Christ. But there are several ways in relation to how the saints walked in their spiritual path towards Christ. Some were celibate, some were married, some were quiet, some were preachers, you know, some were terrible sinners that changed, and some had a Christian life from the very start. And that's a beautiful concept to keep us rejuvenated and encouraged. Right? Now, think about what this statement did for Judas. Okay? 
He says that I chose you and one of you is a devil. Put yourself in Judas's shoes right here and you just hear this. <laughs> what do you think this does to Judas? Yes, you're absolutely right. So he, he didn't foresee his final end of betrayal, right? I don't think any of us really see that the road we're taking will take us to our demise. And we just one day wake up realizing like, wait, I'm heading in the wrong direction, right? And so this just probed at him in a very gentle way, the same way that it must have probed every single disciple, right? So Christ is dealing with him in a tactful way, in a very delicate way. Because he knows what Judas is going to do. Judas may not know. And maybe the other 11 disciples are thinking, you know, is he talking about me? And you clearly see this in the dialogue whenever they're having the Last Supper, Right? And that's whenever he tells them plainly, the one who dips his bread with me is the one who will betray me. Right? But St. John Chrysostom highlights the wisdom of Christ in, in his response right here. He says, see the wisdom of Christ. He neither exposes the traitor, right? he doesn't just expose Judas and says, ah, you're the traitor, nor allows him to remain hidden. In this way, Judas is not so publicly humiliated that he becomes more contentious, but Christ also doesn't embolden him by allowing him to think that his wicked deeds are proceeding undetected. Okay, so like, it probes at him to walk cautiously. Right? And St. Cyril highlights that the ambiguity of this statement or this question kind of leaves them all on edge because he doesn't directly tell them who's going to betray him. So then it probes all of them to walk more cautiously. Okay? It prompts more caution from every single one of them. Okay? And they all realize the possibility of falling. Like, wait, this could be me. I'm not so infallible. Right? So it prompts more vigilance from each one of them. Right now, we always have to remember how fallible we are. Okay? We have to remember that we are just as weak as any of the disciples who struggled to remain faithful. And whenever Jesus was arrested, they all dispersed. You know, we are quite as weak and fallible as well. And so... You saw how Peter reacted whenever Christ told him that you're going to betray me. He said, no, never. I would never do that. Right? Not me. I love you too much. And that's a very arrogant response for any Christian. For us to always remember our fallibility, to always remember that we're weak. 
Okay, a beautiful quote to keep in mind is that we're not wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, or holier than David. Okay, these were three great men that fell. Right? Solomon was full of wisdom. Samson was full of strength. David was full of holiness. But we're not wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, or holier than David. And so, if I'm not wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, holier than David, and they all fell, <laughs> what can I say about myself? Right? So always walk with that humility, saying, God, if it's not, if it's not for your grace, I'm stumbling every moment of my day. Okay? All right, so I have to remember how much we really depend on God's grace to stay up on our own two feet. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was, I'm surprised that he said, and one of you is a devil. Like, yeah. Such a... That's exactly what I was going to oh. transition to talk about right now, which is a perfect segue. So, why would he put it that way? So, let me bring the question back to you. Uh, if you could just speculate why he would use like such a harsh way to put it. Because you're right, he could have said, one of you is a traitor. One of you is aligned with Satan. But like one of you is a devil. It's pretty harsh. Okay. Okay. So you sound like you don't know the extent of your wickedness. Like it could get ugly. Right? And I think we also consider our life in a way that identifies with the person that we follow. Right? And so when we align ourselves with the devil, then we are basically identifying with him. And that's what Christ is doing here. He's identifying Judas with the devil because he's aligning his behavior with the devil. So to Christ, they're one and the same. Right? And that's actually what we say in regarding um, the concept of theosis. God became man, that man may become God. But then, is, I mean, aren't we, I know it's a different level, but aren't we all betrayers of Christ in some capacity? So then are we all Well, the difference is that Judas didn't just make a mistake. Yeah. He aligned himself with the devil. He identified with the devil. He walked with the devil. It wasn't just like he slipped and then got back up. Because look what Peter did. Yeah. You can even say that Peter did it three times, whereas what Judas did was just one action. But it wasn't just reduced to that one betrayal, it was his whole mind, his whole heart, his whole being was aligned with the devil to the extent that he identified with the devil. So is that the difference? Because we always have kind of this debate and I noticed in your quote from St. Augustine, the, the phrase of uh, evil person or evil man uh, and you know, 
we hear like don't judge the person, just judge the action. So don't necessarily call someone evil, just what they're doing that's evil. So is it okay then to say evil man or evil person if they're like Judas, like aligned with the devil completely for, with their whole entire heart and life versus hmm. someone who slips and falls, does something evil, but that is not in essence who they are? That's a very intricate question because in some sense we do identify with, uh, with the behaviors that we do. Like so David says um, ab about the wickedness of men that, that I hated them, O Lord, and I hated them with perfect hatred. And we typically say, love the sinner and hate the sin. Right? David's like, I don't just hate what they're doing. <laughs> I hate them with perfect hatred. Right? Because there's an extent in which the person is aligned with that life. He becomes that lifestyle. Right? Now, it's not our place to judge. Right? Because I don't know if a person is really walking with the devil, if they're just falling, if you know, they're struggling, if they're really trying to walk with God, but they keep slipping, right? But all we know is that our, our behavior does identify with the person we follow. And, and just as we say like we can identify with Christ, that we are called by His name, that we are to become Christ, right? The opposite extreme is equally applicable. We can go either direction. We become a devil or we become Christ. That's what the fathers taught us about theosis, that God became man, that man may become God. Not like God. And, and that's a very significant distinction because we try to water it down. Like, well, we're not really supposed to be God. You know, we'd be like God. No, the fathers all said that man may be God became man, that man may become God. Right? And so that's the extent of our identification with Christ. Like the phrase, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. If you walk like Christ and you talk like Christ, you must be Christ. So the people see Christ in you. Right? Any comments or questions about it? Versus, like, like Christ seems to be the most harsh towards that hypocrisy. Like hmm. On the outside, it's good, but on the inside, it's not. Yeah. Versus, you know, someone who's away from Christ altogether. You know, it's those that are with him, but are not with him. Yes. You're absolutely uh, true. I think God hates nothing more than that. And that's, I think, the extent of wickedness is that hypocrisy. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I think the way I see, see it, um, God knows the end of everybody's life, and He's the only one that knows that. So, us as limited human beings, we have no idea the end of anyone's life. Yeah. Whether it's Hitler or right. worse, worse human being, who knows? Who knows that before? They could have gone to heaven, who knows? So, we're just called just to love everybody and leave that to God. And God knew, He knew that the Jews was going to do it at the end of his life. He knew 
Christ, and there will be no hope, and who did deny Christ? He knew he was going to go to hell. Right. But Peter, he didn't, he didn't say he wanted to be a traitor, because Peter was a traitor. Yeah. But he knew his end was, he was going to yes. repent, and he was going to turn and go to God and go to heaven. So only God has that vision. Yeah. Life. And that's why we have no place to call anyone a devil. <laughs> So I'm, I'm totally with you. No matter how evil their behavior is and how explicit it is, we don't know. Same. So when you mentioned that the Judas identified with the devil, um, the, the thing that I thought of is I view this verse as a sort of characterization, really, um, because align themselves with Christ for their whole lives um, if they were deep down not aligned with what he stands for. for. For example, you can think of a lot of think of some of the bad people who were like let's say people of the Catholic Church I don't mean to I'm saying like during the Crusades for example mm. like these people who incited movements of war and stuff like that, they gained power and they gained money and there was at least something that they got back from aligning themselves with Christ but at the same time having that double life. It, Judas, at least as far as biblical knowledge goes, did not really benefit um, from you know having a lot of money or living luxuriously or mm. having uh, a lot of his desires fulfilled. Mm. And so I think of it as he probably was struggling throughout the journey and then towards the end of it just fell, more so than he was the devil from the get-go. Um, so this strikes me more of Christ wanted to say that I know in absolute terms, hmm. more so than he wanted to characterize Judas yeah, I mean, his identification of Judas as a devil is not exclusive to that moment. I think what you're, what you're trying to say is that it's not that like he was walking with Satan from the start. Like he fell or just deviated from God throughout his journey. You know, sooner or later, he started to drift further away. We don't know exactly when that transition happened, right? That's my whole point. Yeah. So then the, the final word is what his life amounts to. So the distinction? Yeah. So, no, it, it, the life in its entirety. Okay. Right? So he's looking at, at, at Judas, um, for lack of a better word, the legacy of Judas, as opposed to the legacy of Peter or, or David. Like, despite all of the stumbles along the way, what does it amount to in the end? Righteousness or wickedness? Right? For Judas, it was wickedness. Right? regardless of how we d distinguish between that transition, right? When, but all in all, he's saying, y your life amounts to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So anyways, what I really wanted to highlight here is that the person that we align ourselves with is the person that we identify with. Okay, 
So if, if I am walking with Christ, then I am one with him. Okay, just as if I am walking uh, with the world, I am one with the world. I am worldly. No, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. I'm 100% but, with but, you. But how, if anything, these people should be looked at um, with empathy. So why, so why did he put it this way? That's what? There are actually several events in, in the ministry where the scriptures highlight the greed of Judas. So we know it was there, like, and then God knows his heart, right? And that's why Christ says, like, this is really what you're all about, right? It's not going to change the way I feel about you. I'm still going to love you and care for you and not just choose you, but equip you to go out and serve, right? Because his love is unconditional, but he's acknowledging the reality, right? The reality is, you're not just making a mistake. You're aligning yourself with this way of life to the extent that Christ has the audacity to call him a devil. Right? Not that he's literally the devil, but he's saying you are walking with him. You're identifying with him. Right? All we can take away from this is that what our hearts follow is where we identify, right? And we apply this in a positive way, just as you see this in a negative way with Judas, that he said, one of you are walking with the devil, so I'll go to the extent of calling him a devil. One of you is walking with Christ, so I can call you Christ, right? And, and that's motivating, right? That's encouraging. So I just want us to walk away with the significance of just walking with someone, you become one with the person that you align your mind with. You become one with the person that you devote your heart to. Okay? And yes, Judas devoted his heart to Satan because of his greed or pride or whatever, regardless of when it happened. But for us, we devote our mind and our heart to God, then we become one with Him. Okay? And that's what it means to be Christian. Right? So what it, what it means to live this life of theosis. Right? Why God became man, that we may become God. Okay? So, with that, we finally finished chapter 6. Right? And glory be to God forever. Amen. Alright, let's stand to pray.